Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Ricky Burdett, and I'm a professor of urban studies and director of uh, LSE Cities and run the Urban Age program with Philip Rode and others, uh, which is a joint program with the Alfred Herrhausen Society, and together we're sponsoring this uh, evening's lecture, Protect and Develop, with David Shipperfield and uh, in discussion also with Rowan Moore. Uh, what a day to have this discussion about protecting or developing London. Um, I'm told that something like under 15% of the electorate has voted for our charismatic mayors, um, and, uh, which is a bit depressing, but hopefully by 10 o'clock that will change. But it's also a beautiful day to uh, see what London is about, uh, those rare moments that you walk through Bloomsbury, uh, you see the white buildings, you see the four-story terraces, and you see what the London urban grain is all about. Uh, and I think tonight is about how do we protect that and how do we uh, keep the city going? How do we keep it alive? And we'll talk about those issues uh, in part of the discussion, but very much provoked by uh, what will be David Chipperfield's uh, presentation. Now, I mentioned LSE Cities, which uh, is one of the research centers here at the school. Um, basically, what we do there and have done for a number of years is research the interfaces between the social world and the physical world. And tonight what we're doing is perhaps untypically uh, for what we've been doing for some time, but very, very welcome, is narrowing down onto the interface between what the city actually feels like, what it looks like, and the economic forces. So it's still about the social and the physical, but looking at it from the point of view of that very, very fundamental interface, which ultimately is what shapes cities, what uh, produces investment, uh, and what creates architecture. And to do that, we have two very, very respected and important people, David Chipperfield, an architect, and Rowan Moore, a writer and a critic. Uh, to the architectural community, David is uh, well known as the winner of the RIBA, RIBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects Gold Medal, uh, only a few years ago. He's won a string of awards. And why it's interesting, I think, to hear David's view on this subject is that his work in many different countries, many different cities around the world over the last 30 years, really has always tried to connect to respond, listen to the voice of the city uh, in his work. Even though the work is beautifully detailed, you could say you can recognize a David Chipperfield building when you see one, it has something to do with understanding the sense of place. And I think that's what we ultimately will be talking about through a series of questions that David is going to pose tonight. Now, David, as I say, has worked for now a number of decades, in fact. Uh, in architecture, he has a large practice with... Um, three or four different offices, a very large one in Berlin, also, of course, in London, but doing a major extension of the Metropolitan Museum in New York City, uh, worked extensively in Japan, in many other cities across Europe, including Sweden, uh, where he's had interesting debates with the planning authorities there uh, in terms of getting planning permission for uh, one of the major new uh, buildings there for the Nobel Prize, um, and many other experiences of the sort. And in many ways, I think tonight is a reaction to the practice of being an architect in different contexts, a frustration with, probably, being in that position, but a provocation to all of us to debate 
this issue of how do you uh, work, intervene in an urban context like the one that we all inhabit at the moment, which is London, at an extraordinary moment of change. Uh, that moment of change has been documented by Rowan Moore in his new book, Slow Burn City, which is uh, all over the, the news. You can raise it. Rowan, why don't you put it up? There it is. Yep. You, can't, you can't buy it tonight. We'll do that uh, another time. Um, but Rowan will, uh, has been documenting, in many ways, the potential, but also some of the recent ails of London in this moment of sort of intensified uh, growth, which we will come back to in the discussion. Uh, the format of the evening is uh, typical for the LSE. David will come up to the platform and speak for about 40 minutes or so uh, on these themes, an illustrated talk, uh, and then uh, both Rowan and I will join him at the front for discussion between us, and hopefully we'll have time for questions from the floor. When we come to that, please... I said questions from the floor. Can you stick to that? Don't make statements and don't write essays verbally as you stand in the room. Uh, the LSE have ways of dealing with that. <clears throat> um, now, just a few words before I go back to David to really place London in context, not just David in context. Um, London is a city which only until very few years ago, a couple of decades ago, was an enormous decline. I mean, here we are tonight talking about, in a way, the problems of success. It's a city which has went from nearly 9 million people uh, just at the peak of the Second World War, dropped dramatically to nearly 5.5 million. That's an enormous drop. And then picked up uh, significantly in the last 20 years and is, as we know, set to grow to something like um, <clears throat> 10 million people by 2030. In fact, it's overtaken its historical high only a year ago of 8.6 million people. There's a lot of debate, and we're going to come back to that, no doubt, but I hope not only to that, to the fact of where do we accommodate this growth? Is it in tall buildings? Is it in, uh, as David will call them, fat buildings, ground scrapers rather than skyscrapers? But where do we put, where does Zach or where does Sadiq tomorrow put 50,000 new homes a year, which is what we actually need, with everything else which goes for that, the schools, the hospitals, and the infrastructure required for that. And how do we do that without destroying the DNA of, of London? And a couple of other statistics uh, just to frame uh, where we are. I've mentioned the population of 8.6 million, but this is a city which punches way beyond its weight in terms of its economic power. That's why London has the problems that it has. It contributes to nearly 25% of the national economy, but has just over 10% of the population. You know, that's quite a big uh, uh, and significant difference. And, of course, uh, we see, as we look out of this building and many others, the cranes that are, are going up. Uh, we're told that there are 119 uh, planning applications for buildings over 20 stories high, that the mayor, until midnight last night, uh, Boris Johnson refused only three of them, three of the applications, or the different planning authorities refused only three of them. So this is, of course, something which captures the imagination and needs to be discussed. The great advantage of this evening, and that's why I look so much forward to David's contribution, is that we'll actually be seeing it through the eyes of someone who makes the city, not just someone who sets the planning policy. For those at the LSE and the sort of public policy debate, this will be 
I hope, a refreshing discussion uh, for those who are designers and come from an architectural and urban design background. No doubt the questions and the discussions will also open it up to broader questions of social uh, integration, economic development, and policy formulation. So that's very much the context in which we're talking tonight. I'm delighted that so many of you are here, but please join me in welcoming my dear friend, David Shipperfield. Thank you, Ricky, my friend. Um, architects are always much more comfortable talking about their own work, and um, it's always difficult to leave the safety of one's own projects. But I was encouraged to talk about issues that um, relate to the city specifically. And part of that, um, the initiative of that, came from the fact that I am a trustee of the Sone Museum, which is the other side of the square. And at the Sone Museum, we want to start talking more about the relationship between history and conservation as a positive aspect of planning, as opposed to what tends to happen in London in this very energetic moment of development, that the keeping of buildings seems to be in some sort of conflict and um, contradiction with development. It shouldn't be. We should have a, a sort of... Um, we should see these as two sides of, of, uh, of, of a great city. In other words, while we reinvent the city, we need to decide what we keep from what is from before, because we know that that's an aspect of the city that we all love, the fact that the city is a record of, of history and of its own history and of the physical layers. Um, so the normal um, safety rope that an architect has of showing you project by project, um, I'm abandoning tonight. So I, I need another uh, safety rope, and that safety rope is going to be in the... the I'm going to ask and try to partially answer because that's the issue about talking about the city. It's so big you can't really give answers to these. But I'm going to ask questions and make my own uh, observations um, from the point of view of uh, being an architect working in the city. So I've taken these um, concerns... Uh, complaints, moans, um, uh, you know, observations. And I've tried to um, pull, pull it to pieces and ask a number of questions. So the first question I ask is, um, to what degree does architecture contribute to a good city? One of the things that, you know, Ricky... Ricky refers to a time, you know, it wasn't so long, it's within our professional lifetimes, you know, 25 years ago, there was very little development in London. And what there was was of very poor quality. And there was a lot of complaint about the quality of architecture. 
and there was a sort of general sense that speculative architecture, investment architecture, was of a poor quality. And that doesn't, you know, that in itself was one of the issues. I don't believe that's really true anymore. I think that the quality of investment architecture is now very high. And I don't think that the issues that are really confronting the city are only to do with the quality of architecture. And if we maintain that notion, I think we don't get any closer. This is not London, obviously. Um, This is Doha. I could choose any number of um, other cities. And I use this, first of all, as as, uh, an illustration of the difficult dance dialogue there is now between architecture, investment, and urbanism. You know, in this particular uh, collage, this um, sort of uh, sculptural, um, you know, arrangement, what's coming first? You know, is the architecture coming first? Is the idea of the city coming first? Or is investment coming first? Um, Are they in any way working together. Uh, It would be easy to say that um, this is a lack of planning. It's not true. There's a lot of coordination, a lot of planning goes into this. Um, It would be easy to say the buildings are not great. I don't even think you can say that. Um, How do you design a nice building? I mean, which shape are you going to choose? Uh, What's your context? So part of my premise is that as we undervalue the the importance of the city, we have we we it has consequence on the quality of architecture. In other words, all of us as architects would if we're asked to build a tower there, I don't know which one of us refuses. But I know that there are other places that one, and other projects that one might want to do first, because what do you do? How, what sort of competition do you participate? And we can, we can find this, I can find you know, millions of slides in different, this is China. Um, again, a sort of total confusion about what, what is a city, what is architecture? I mean, obviously, there's two typologies here, the sort of villa and the tower. And I don't know whether that's a, an investment decision, that let's make more money with the villas on the water. Uh, I don't know. It's difficult to understand. But what's clear is this dance between investment, architecture, and urbanism is at the center of the developing cities. And this is a view from my office in Waterloo. So it's not, this is not an issue confined to Shanghai or China. Um, every day uh, we look out of the window and more and more towers are going up. The city skyline changes. And, of course, we suddenly realize that the city has changed because the skyline looks different. But actually... I'm less worried about the skyline than than what happens on the ground. But the reason I ask this question about um, whether good architecture 
is necessary is because when we sit in this office and you know, make models of staircases and facades and spaces. Uh, we look out of the window, we see this, and you sort of wonder, you know, are we not just shifting the seats around on the Titanic deck? Um, you know, does, is worrying about a window detail or a handrail detail or um, the organization of spatial sequence in a building mean very much when actually the, biggest, the bigger issue is probably what we're seeing outside of the window. Um, conversely, then, if we ask the question the other way around, um, you know, can, can a city get away? Can you have a good city without... You know, what, you know, if, can we get closer to what makes a good city by examining this relationship between architecture and urbanism? Um, this is Naples, Santa Lucia... Um, a sort of horrible development of the, the city to the um, very close to the historic center, um, extended in the end of the uh, middle of the 19th century, end of the 19th century, and later. Um, Naples, obviously, uh, is made up of um, this mess, but it's full of life. You know, it's somehow, you, you know, we all love Naples. And if you examine it, you wouldn't say it's because of the buildings, um, but you would say it's probably because of what the buildings stand for and the teeming life and the energy and the humanity it suggests, even in, even in its conflicted form. Um, and here's another image, a mundane image of a pleasant place. This is not um, a retail, you know, it's not a designed urban space with, with retail. It does have shops. It's not wonderful architecture. It's sort of mundane. So the question is, you know, is this place worse because the buildings aren't good or are there other things? Now clearly, um, as an architect, I have to believe that the physical uh, quality of things makes a difference. So one has to believe that this is a much more beautiful pavement than that one, and that might um, give us something. So I firmly believe that the, the physical is important. And this is the, you know, so this is the thing I want to examine. To what degree... Does the physical, uh, you know, need to be there in order for us to make a good city? So here's another mundane street. This is, uh, I think, this is Berlin, um, and again, it urbanistically, it sort of works very well. A typical Berlin street of 22 or 23 meters, five, six stories. Um, creates a very simple system of streets um, because when buildings are not too high, you get a very good density. The density supports a certain level of life, etc., etc. But you couldn't say that the architecture is important. In fact, you can see this is a platinum-bound built. So we, we are actually, we must be on the east side of Berlin. This is a GDR 
um, you know, mundane uh, piece of public housing. But is it a, is it a real problem? I'm not sure. Um, Stockholm is a city which has you know changed uh, over the years, but has kept its very beautiful urban structure. And I only show this slide because, again, I would say that the architecture is quite diverse. So I don't believe that we... The point I'm trying to make here is that I don't believe that we need to freeze um, these cities, that I don't believe that the architecture can't be um, diverse, that we can't find um, different styles and different layers... We have to look after what's been there. This is Innsbruck, another very um, beautiful historic city. This actually this is one of the few projects of ours which I will show. So this is a shopping complex, a very large-scale shopping complex built in the middle of the city. And in this case, we obviously were trying to fit in. But at the same time, commercially the city was very anxious and very interested in trying to get investment, not only just property investment, but investment in a type of retail which would otherwise go outside of the city. We know that if these operations, or this type of operation doesn't happen to some degree, then the city, um, you know, starves in turn, or it becomes a museum. Um, one of the things that's most difficult... To, to, to talk about and, and explain um, is that what worries me about those images that I showed you, first of all, um, is not that any of the buildings are particularly bad, um, not that they couldn't be a good city and they, you couldn't make um, good urban space or you couldn't solve that, but there seems to be, we seem to have given up the idea of, of a sense of a city. We don't anymore imagine what a city sh should look like. Um, this is uh, Kayabot's painting, uh, actually of his brother, I think. Um, 1875, this man is looking out of uh, his window. Um, this is Hausmann's Paris, in, you know, literally, you know, built ten years before, and um, you get this uh, wonderful and potent image, which you know we've seen in painting many times, uh, of someone looking out of a window. Um, but in this case, you see. What I, why I like this painting is it puts the city and the, and the individual into a very strong relationship. And in a way, it's a relationship that we sort of all hanker for. Um, you know, to open the window and look out, and there's the exciting city downstairs. You know, there you are in the city. For me, this, the relationship between the individual, his private space... Uh, and his view of this, you know, the larger world mediated by the architecture of the city. This seems to me to speak of urbanism, what we think a city should look like in a way, 
and, and to the individual. It would be much easier for us because, let me jump a little bit, we no longer build such cities. We, we are no longer capable of doing such things. We don't do it, which is fine. We don't do this anymore. Which would be fine if we weren't still somehow romantically attached to it. We still go, you know, on weekend trips to European cities and walk around, um, you know, urban centers and say how wonderful they are. We haven't yet, um, you know, decided, we don't yet go to new developments and do the same. No one wanders around Paddington Basin on the weekend, you know. Um, because Paddington Basin doesn't look like a city. It may be, but it, that's not, it doesn't trigger off ideas of what a city is about. So there's a very vague thing I'm trying to talk about, which is, um, you know, what should a city look like? Should it look like anything? Or is it only the consequence of forces of investment and, and practicalities, logistics, regulations? Or does it conform to some other sensibility? The other point, and, and I'm, I'm jumping, it will sort of, they do link together, but it seems to me the other issue and related to that, related to the man in the window, seems to me that the substance of a city is domestic. Um, it's first and foremost made of places where we live. That's why it's interesting. And that's what gives it scale. So behind every window is a life. Um, and on, you know, with so many lives, then there can be things that happen at the ground level which also part of that life. So the city becomes a physical and socially fascinating. And this, the physical and the social go together. There is a, you know, this is somehow what we like about cities, I think. Um, and I don't want to be too hard on um, Paddington Basin because I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's anyone's fault. But this is what we do. And everybody does it with the best of intentions. Um, we are, you know, it's, there are granite sets, there's grass, there's even public sculpture. Um, there's cafes. There's every, everything on the shopping list that's meant to be there, that's meant to be urban and to be making a city but it's not you know and, and okay this this is a bit problematic because we've got a canal and it's one-sided and um, but what happens is that we don't plan the space between buildings anymore we plan buildings and what happens between is is that and you couldn't ask for them to do anything more I mean, what more could the investor do here? I mean, I've done, I've done everything for you. I've done little hedges. I've done little places to sit. I've done nice materials. Uh, you know, what more do you want? How much more as, a, as the investor could I give you? And you're still, you still don't think this is a city? No, I don't. You know, it's somehow, it's 
conceived in a very different way. So, and clearly, this is a very different type of environment to that, because here the domestic is the rules. The domestic is dominant, even if some of these buildings become office. And they have a scale. You know, every 10 meters or so, even less, you have a doorway. Every, um, when we get here, we have something very different. We don't have that same relationship. We can't. Um, so then the next question I asked is, why, what happened to housing? Why has housing become such a problem? Why, don't, why aren't we not building housing in the center of the city? Why are we only building expensive housing and the required so-called affordable housing, um, which always seems a strange title. Um, so there, there seems to be a coincidence between, you know, if we just talk about London for a minute, but I will expand this because I don't want this just to be a session about beating up on London, but clearly as investment has come to London and as the public sector has become weaker, the private sector has become stronger, then the authority that used to deliver housing, social housing, doesn't deliver it anymore. And the market doesn't want to deliver it either. The market wants to leverage. Now, you, that also hits another wall, which was how bad was some of the public housing that was built. You know, and that, was, that wasn't clearly an issue, that, that social public housing um, got a bad name. It was badly done. Therefore, we have this sort of little perfect storm in a way. We, we have a, a, a product which is clearly unsatisfactory and was the consequence of a sort of radical ideas about how we might live, which end up like this. We have a diminishing public sector and we have a thriving investment sector, which all seem to spin together. But that means that we are no longer... Um, we no longer get housing, uh, social housing, being built in the city. Um, now, just as a, an aside, I want to show two housing estates, which, which um, are quite interesting in terms of, um, you know, the consequence. This is, uh, and they're both in Berlin. This is the Tiergarten, uh, and a housing... Um, uh, project which experiment. So when Berlin was, was cut in half the East started doing certain things and the West started doing things. In the West they adopted um, this very uh, Corbusian idea of buildings in the park and uh, they were it was um, very um, avant-garde at the time and uh, unlike, you know, like many uh, modernist projects of the time, it became slightly unfashionable or, or slightly, um, yeah, off the off the radar in terms of, of of a strategy for building housing. But interestingly, unlike m much of the housing, and I don't know whether you can see that here, much of the, the housing of that period, um, the park actually came with the housing. So the Corbusian idea of towers, and we you know we have it a lot. In 
in London, the housing estates, were not built uh, with the other side of the, the deal, which was the dream at the time, which was that you, you get density by keeping more park and building high buildings. Now, interestingly, so this was built in the... In the is it, this was initiated in the 50s, the Hansa Viertel, and it's now highly desirable um, place to live, and it's, it's turned into a success, and it is, you know, it's, it, it, it's hard social housing. On the other side of the wall, um, in 1953, this is uh, the Karl Marx Alley. So the East Germans are building this uh, representative housing project. So whereas this was about, um, you know, this was a sort of post-war angst trying to find new informal ways uh, and modern ways of, of living, um, this adopted a sort of, in a way, typical um, authoritarian and representative idea of a city. Interestingly, again, one would say that you know, this went through different phases of, of um, desirability since the wall came down, and, but it now has really um, you know, survived well and is a very desirable place to live. And it does have, it does have character. I show these two projects because I think they, um, they contain vision. It's very difficult, I think, to build cities without vision. The provision of housing can't just be the provision of housing like providing washing machines or something. You know, politicians talk about the fact we have to deliver X number of housing units in the next so many years. It seems to me that that's missing a great opportunity which is being grasped in the, in the intense and highly sensitive days after the war, both of these projects are ideological and full of vision. And actually, the lesson, I think, is that both of these projects are good because they have an idea behind them. And strangely, you know, I mean, I can't really show the best slides of them, but they, um, you know, they are very pleasant now. You know, they, they are desirable. Um, we shouldn't forget that we have had our own uh, moments, I think, the Barbican. Again, something which went deeply out of fashion is now deeply desirable again. And why? I think because there was an idea behind it, because there is an idea of community. There is an idea that this is a part of the city. It is a new part of the city. Whether one really agrees with that vision or not, um, and clearly it suffered from a lot of the technical and logistic issues that housing did at that time of these sort of first, first floor walkways because everyone was obsessed to separate traffic and pedestrianise it. These things which, you know, weren't very good for a while, but actually, again, they've been adopted rather well. So the Barbican does have, you know, it's an unusual, I think, example, but shows us what is possible. Is it, pos you know, is it nice because the architecture is amazing? Is it nice because it's... It's a particular type. I think it's, I think it's good because it is motivated by vision, and it's not just the consequence of investment. The problem is that that investment, uh, now that, you know, that, that organization, the idea that someone might predetermine, might plan, I mean, 
That requires planning. That requires the coordination of land, investment, and idea, because it's, it engages also all sorts of other social ideas in terms of culture, in terms of schools, and all that. That is not just doing a master plan and letting investors build it out. We can only do that if we have a proactive planning authority. We have eroded. I never thought, you know, when I started off as an architect, I thought that planners were, that, you know, um, were, 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 were awful. Uh, and I never imagined that I would spend now, you know, at the end of my, you know, at this point, um, <laughs> find myself uh, lamenting the fact that we don't have enough planners and don't have enough good planners. We don't spend enough money on planners. You know, if we want a better city, th- that's where we should be putting our money. If I'm sh- someone should do the calculation between the amount of money that's being spent on buildings in this city and the amount of money we spend on planners. It's probably an obscene uh, amount. You can't get a, you know, appointments with planners anymore. I mean, it's just... So I don't think one can, can overestimate the importance of, of um, guidance and not guidance, and I come onto this, not guidance just in terms of, of um, uh, some sort of regulations. Uh, this is every architect's favorite drawing of a city. This is the Nolly Plan. Uh, and um, it's drawn to show the city of Rome, uh, but showing the public space, the streets in white, but also the accessible uh, buildings. So churches and monuments and courtyards. The courtyards were also... Uh, until quite recently also accessible. So this is defining um, the idea of, of the city as a rich layer of physical and social. I mean, everything is in this plan. Everything that would one loves about cities is in it. The contrast between the solid and the void between the buildings and the space they make. The space is not a leftover space, but it's nearly a generator. You nearly feel like the white. The reason architects like this is because the white and the black are reversible. You know, in contemporary plans, buildings are black, and what, what goes around them is white. In the Nolly plan, you have the feeling that this could have been generated by the white as much as it was generated by the black, and probably was. So this isn't space left over. This is space creating um, you know, the carving of order from a, an apparent disorder. This idea that um, a city can be given order not by imposing some, some overall uh, geometry, but the order is found in a much more uh, delicate way. And I think finally, the sort of tapestry of history, you know, the city as a layered and complex record of history. These are, you know, that's the cocktail that you want in any, in any city. And that's why every architect loves this, because it somehow we can't escape uh, you know, how important that. And many, many uh, generations have picked up this idea of the, 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 important, uh, the importance of urban planning. This is Camillo City in the, in the uh, end of the 19th century. Um, use, ac- adopting this notion of the equivalence between um, the, the 
the space between buildings and buildings themselves. Those, those are observations. So the question is, okay, fine, that, that, that tells us, you know, that, that's an observation about how beautiful cities might be, but what about going forward? Um, are there examples of, you know, uh, putting operations into plan? This is Serdar's um, plan of Barcelona, enormous expansion of the city. And I just quickly, I'm, I'm sure you, you know about it, what an amazing expansion. I mean, the scale of this expansion was phenomenal. And the plan set out a grid. It set out the, the building uh, block. Sorry. It set out the size of the building block. It set out the street pattern. Um, and then let everybody do what they wanted. In, in London, we tend to try to control things by the architecture and by the quality of what's on the floor, the granite sets and the little green shrubs. Um, here, there was none of that. There was no prescription about the architecture itself. Every building is different. They, you, know, you, can, you can't see it very well here, but every building is you know, a collage of, of different styles. And the public space was only defined in its scale and, and its, yeah, in its dimensions. It, but it became... Uh, you know, an uh, uh, unbelievably uh, effective mechanism. So when we say, how can we instigate planning, you know, because that seems to be prescriptive, uh, this was prescriptive, but it allowed a city to grow. Um, this is Colin Rowe um, uh, with uh, Collage City. That Again, the sort of... So, you know, architects are fascinated by that tradition that comes from Nolly comes from the idea of, of, um, of setting out um, city spaces as, as a determinant. So in our own city, what happened to planning? So Christopher Wren, um, you know, a few days after the fire of London, covered in soot, goes to the king, says, you know, we can, we can make sense out of this fire, let's build a new city. The king says... Um, we don't have the resources, uh, and we don't do it. But here's, you know, the great tradition of trying to, to make a plan. Of course, we, we uh, by, by refusing it, we kept our medieval street structure and, and probably good for it. There, are, there have been moments, a much more English solution to planning, as opposed to this was, the, you know, us trying to be French with the, the axes and the points we wanted, Wren wanted to turn this into a sort of... Uh, Baroque city. And then this is uh, Nash uh, finding a sort of way from St. James all the way to the newly formed the park he's going to make um, you know, along a sort of seam, an economic seam between uh, expensive land and poor land around the Langham here and creating this wonderful urbanistic device of, of all souls to get him around the corner. So you know, he creates an urban vision, uh, one of the few uh, strong impositions urban plans in, in London. Then we have Abercrombie's plan, you know, in the war, at the end of the war, uh, and uh, very, I mean, when we, when, when we see this, it, it looks so old-fashioned and, and charming that, you know, someone is trying to coordinate infrastructure, housing, 
you know, again, it, a lot of things wrong with this, but it shows this idea of planning. Um, so at some point, we decided to call planning master planning. Um, and master planning is something else. Master planning is planning without vision. It's logistic planning. It basically says, in an investor market, we need to make a whole lot of decisions and coordinate those decisions before someone can start building. So we need to know where the traffic's going to go, where are the main entrances to the development, um, where's the parking, how big the buildings can be. It's a, it's a subdivision. It's like a farm. You, know, you just sort of divide up the land into convenient packages. There is no overall idea. That's, it's, it's about freeing land. So, and we call these master plans. And it gives us the comfort that we have somehow planned something. Now, some of those master plans are very sophisticated. Canary Wharf is an unbelievably sophisticated plan. And it's been robust, and it's allowed these large blocks to be built. And again, it's well done. It's a bit of sort of civic American planning um, of the highest quality. Right? But it is a master plan. And we are seeing this you know, happening all the time. Here's, here's another one. Um, and uh, this is Bishopsgate Yard. I think this is rather controversial at the moment. Again, I've got to be careful here because as an architect, you know, we are complicit in such things. We, you know, we, we're not, we have blood on our hands as well. Um, but you realize that someone wants to redevelop this piece of land, okay? It's, so the investors want to put money there. Why not? Um, without any other guidance, why wouldn't they put as much on as possible? And once you put on as much as possible, you've decided the form of this piece of city, because that's what it is. Um, you know, Paddington Basin is the same size as Soho. So we have opportunities to add to our cities in these, place, in these places. So we're not just talking about whether we like this building or not. There are some very good architects that involved in these projects. The question is, does it add up? To anything has that given? <clears throat> um, you know, nobody. I don't know anybody that would choose to go to Paddington Basin, and yet it is a new piece of the city, the size of Soho. I mean, there's nothing to stop you going there, um, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't get rewarded by it. Um, so, taking another view of this story. What about protection? If we, if we sort of said, yes, but, you know, uh, we want to somehow protect our city more, would that stop the investment that this city is benefiting from? Because as Ricky said earlier, you know, we have to, you know, accept that, you know, if you sit in Paris, London is a big success. I mean, London, Paris would love some of the investment that's happened here. This city is, you know, has benefited over the last 10 years or more from excessive investment. If we protect, if we were to say we want to put some limitation on that, if we had, if we had a less relaxed planning 
um, situation, would that frighten investors away? Or putting it another way around, are they here because we have such a relaxed system? As an example of that, I, I have been advising the city of Munich for the last year, um, sitting in between uh, the investor who we had done something, actually the project in Innsbruck, the same investor has bought this uh, um, site in, uh, in Munich, in a very prominent place, and wants to redevelop it. This is a, a poster trying to stop the project happening, and it, here it says, this is, I think this is meant to be an explosive, it's one of those little fireworks, but I don't think it would actually do very much if you lit it, but it says, money makes the world go round. So, you know, will, are we going to accept that our cities are blown up by investment? And it's been, and this is one of the buildings that the city wanted to protect. So a building from the 50s, it's pretty ugly. Um, uh, and it's been a fascinating experience to sit between the historic buildings department of, of Munich and the investor, because the investor would say, but this is rubbish, we can tear it down. And the historic buildings department would say, well, no, it's important. Of course, it's not a great building. However, what Munich is saying at this point, and I have to say I, I rather admire it, that if we keep knocking such things down, we won't have Munich anymore. We'll have Dusseldorf or whatever. So there's a strange idea that this secondary or even tertiary building which was done by a decent architect. It was done straight after, the, you know, in the 50s, late 50s. Um, it, it is typical architecture of that time. Uh, if we keep knocking these things down, we're going to have nothing left. From the investor point of view, they're saying, yeah, but it's mad. We're keeping a building which was not very well built, and it's not of the highest quality. But I find this really fascinating. So the, the issue I want to talk about, just as... Trying to finish um, is to you know are there methods by which we can introduce some sort of legislation more than we have uh, at the moment and going back to this issue of you know do we do we have an idea about what cities should look like well if a city like Munich, uh, like Zurich this is the the city city model of Zurich so in the in the in the city architecture department uh, they have this model. If, you, if you're building something, you put your little white model in this model and you stand with 25 people uh, at a meeting, a few meetings, and discuss how your building sits into this. So by that way, you have an image of the, of the, of the city. Everybody has an idea of the city. You judge the buildings against an overall impression of the city. There is not, it's not just... You know what you can get away with, what what's sustainable, what the investment requires, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It is a dialogue, and by having that, I just came back from Paris, where we're involved uh, in uh, a project being sponsored by the mayor, where the, the city is now trying to get. There's 23 sites where they are doing a public-private partnership. So Paris, which has been very negative towards investment, is now trying to find ways by which they can link up with investment and get 
projects the way they want them. So I'm showing these because there's, these are attempts to create a relationship, a different relationship that we have here between investment and protection. What we have here, so what we have in London are guidelines and a concern about facades. That all of the things that we've seen is everything between that. Because what we can do in our sort of Anglo-Saxon and pragmatic way is say, okay, we can protect views. Let's make sure we have five minutes. Protect views. Um, we can set up opportunity areas, um, which I'm not quite sure opportunity for who, but clearly um, opportunity for investment. But, uh, and then we can set up conservation areas, and we can have conservation areas. So we have some ways of protecting. Our protection is listed buildings, conservation areas, and views. And then we can, we can judge the architecture by its facades. But between that, everything is possible. We do not get ourselves into a situation where we can somehow debate. This is, this is the Berlin uh, city model. Again, so this idea of trying to think that there are criteria which might be used. Now, thinking about, you know, in London, I would argue that we have been, we are much too soft in terms of how planning is coordinated and that we should have a much more proactive. However, I also accept it's very unlikely that there will ever be a city architect again or even a, a, a large uh, Department of Architects. We had that. Um, uh, and without a public, without any sort of public structure, it's very difficult to organize things. But I'm just showing you this. I, this is a German city. I can't remember which German city it is. It could be any. Um, the orange uh, are, is a master plan, uh, so-called, which, which is the result of a, a competition. So typically in a German city, there would be a competition amongst you know, 10 or 15 firms who would come up with ideas for how this piece of the city should be developed. There, the city will be involved in that. There might even be investors involved in that. But there then will be a de debated and discussed evaluation of how this area of the city should be treated. So there is an idea. There is a vision. So I would call this urban planning more than master planning, whereas the Anglo-Saxon solution. So here's another example. This is, so you can, I, can, I could take you through 20 German-Swiss cities where these developments are subject to discussion, articulated discussion about what the city wants here or what the city could accept there. Okay, the last thing. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in London about the, the skyline and why do we need tall buildings. Um, and clearly, we have been shocked to see the skyline. In my, in my estimation, the tall buildings are the, the sort of the, the rash that you get, um, you know, with an illness. Um, it's just you can see it now. Uh, and... The real issue is much deeper because we don't have planning. So, yes, of course. I'm not sure that the skyline is the worst thing. But 
what I've tried to say is I think that we don't have proper planning system and that planning doesn't look after the substance and the quality of our city. I think that that is partly to do with height. I don't understand why we need tall buildings, really. Why, what's wrong with this type of density? Again, this is Berlin. This is 24 meters. This is a typical uh, density. It came from the fireman's ladder. Uh, It sustains a very high density. It sustains a complexity, uh, which is, you know, really attractive, um, and et cetera, et cetera. Why do we need, you know, what does that do? Um, you know, how can you, make a, how can you make anything that has collective aspirations to that, from that? Um, and finally, I would, so that's about height. The second is about girth. What's happening is that investment wants not only tall buildings, but I think just nearly worse, they want fat buildings. Fat buildings uh, are justified because they are investment efficient. So for every core, or however many cores you have, you, you, your net to gross can be better. You optimize. However, um, so another one of our buildings. If I show you King's Cross, which I would say is, again, one of our better master plans. It's been done really well. It's very professional, good architecture. I just want to draw your attention to here. So this is the building we did, which is this. It's wide enough, isn't it? I mean, do you really need a building wider than that? It's 21 meters, just under 21 meters. Um, I think it's the best building. But (laughs) it's partly the best building because it's the smallest one. It's a nice little thing here. Um, You could park it. Look at these things. Look how big and fat these things are. Now, you can't park these things very comfortably, and you can't make a city, because once you park them, you just get these spaces. And if I compare that to, you know, how a city normally is with a square and streets, and uh, you know, this is agile, and it's flexible, and it can, can cope with different geometries. When you get into these big things, you can't, you can't make a city out of them. Why can't we insist, not only about height, but why can't we insist that buildings shouldn't be so big? This is, there, there is no objective reason that they need to be there. It's only about money. There's no other reason. We could easily say building, buildings shouldn't be that big. It's not a big issue. Okay, so I think that's, yeah, so just again to show how agile, you know, the city is normally, domestic city, in terms of the integration, you know, and and in a way how dull it is, how boring it is, but how comfortable that boredom is. (laughs) That's Shanghai, just in case, just to make you feel, so that's it, sorry I ran David, thank you for that, and we'll pick up on 
uh, some of the points that you've made. I mean, obviously, the issue at the end there that you touched upon, you know, why not tall? Uh, there's an issue of the cost of land, which behind in London, uh, the cost of land is much higher than the cost of a building. So that becomes an, an important issue, and how do you control that? Uh, there's an issue of not only just who, what sort of vision that you've been talking about, but what are the institutions um, that are required to create that vision. And I think you touched upon an issue that Rowan has talked about in his book is the, um, I guess, demolition of the planning uh, system. There are a few individuals in the room that I recognize who uh, were not part of the demolition. They were part of the heroes who sort of uh, remained as, as icons of previous administrations. But it seems to me, David, just to start uh, with one uh, issue, it just keeps on coming back in everything you're saying, uh, particularly with that beautiful image of the Nolly Plan. Think of that black and white image of Rome, which is basically an accumulation of 2,000 years, or at that point, 1,753, or whatever it was, and compare it to that. Right? And um, what is clear, what is missing and in a way what you're talking about is the notion of time and the fact that um, uh, the, the, the urban system that you're talking about uh, is not in any way protective and, 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 and wanting to, uh, in a way, put an envelope around it, put, uh, uh, shrink wrap it into a museum city, which Rome, in a way, has become, but actually think of a system which, as Rome did in that period of its own growth, uh, allow for that change. So this issue of, of, of time, of adaptation, as Richard Sennett often talks and writes about this, about the notion of aggregation, is so important in what you're saying because it's, it's both looking back but also looking forward. And I was wondering whether you might just comment on that and Rowan equally. Well, I think it goes back to your first point, is that the value of land... But, Ricky, land is only valuable because we allow it to find its own value. If you zoned land and said that you could only build five stories on a piece of land, it would set another value. We, we allow it to become, become valuable. And this is so in the English system. Um, you know, that is what development is about. It's about buying a piece of land and seeing how much you can leverage out of it. The European system is, predetermines the heights of buildings, generally. I mean, it, it's, it's eroding, but generally it would say, in this piece of land you can build seven stories and maybe a tower on the corner. There. Then you can't go there and try and beat them up and get 28 stories. Whereas here, part of the game uh, and the, the way that, that money is made is to, to get more out, more out of the planning permission than, you, than other people might might be able to. So it's your, your... But what I'm curious is, and maybe, Ron, you can comment on this, given your, your historical knowledge of this city, is that, of course, a lot of people made a lot of money out of London property for hundreds of years. It's not a recent phenomenon. The, the, the recent phenomenon is uh, the extrusion, let's call it that. Why, why did that happen, Ron? Um, well, and there's always been a, a, a conflict and a contest in London between speculation, exploitation and planning. I mean, there's a view of London that's, that's been very popular in recent decades for obvious reasons, that it is a city that's always made by trade, that 
the great estates, the big landowners built Bloomsbury and Fitzrovia and all these places which we think are great, and those were basically commercial speculations. Um, in my book, I challenge that because as an equal and opposite uh, creative force from the public sector, things like basil jets, sewage system, um, the invention of council housing, things like that, and also from the public, from the things like the the public campaigns that, that saved Hampstead Heath and Epping Forest and the common land. So it's a kind of a contest. Um, and I think fairly obviously in the last 30 years, the balance has gone very much in favour of the market. Um, and in many ways that has created this sort of dynamic, exciting, fascinating city that we are in now. Um, you know, we are all in London now, and we're in London because we like it, and it suits us in many ways. Um, so I think London does create... London now creates very particular challenges, which are actually summed up by the juxtaposition of Shanghai and the Nolly Plan, because we're both. I mean, the we're interesting thing is... It, with Shanghai in, invading yeah. it. With, with, with one difference, which is the um, intervention by the landed aristocracy. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, David, you, you live right in the middle of one of the major estates of London, uh, in, near around Portland Place, you know. These are chunks of city which effectively were developed in a way that you were explaining before. Could you, though, argue that you're then, your hands are tied in terms of what happens to those areas, even though the value of the Grosvenor Estate, the Crown Estate, all these big chunks of city which are owned effectively by um, originally um, aristocratic families, um, w- could you argue that that actually is a model which in a way, resists growth. And if London had just followed that model, we'd be uh, just as far behind as Paris. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you took a sort of an op- opposite scenario and said, let's have a really restrictive planning process, we'd all be rebelling against it. If you said that um, land values were really controlled and the opportunities to, to, to leverage were... Were, were hardly there, we'd all be complaining. Um, I just think when we get to a position where leveraging value is the determining thing, so explicitly, nakedly, you know, determining the way our city is, to such a degree, n- not only do we find ourselves with ridiculous mismatch in terms of building size and city, which brushes aside any notion of urbanism. You know, why couldn't Paddington Basin be a place where you might want to go? Or any of these others, you know, why, why can't we do um, Barbican uh, with all its problems? And so I just think that when we have become so fundamentalist in terms of leveraging uh, value out of land, that that dominates to such a degree that other criteria are just swept aside. And those criteria are, first of all, you know, the appropriateness of volume. Secondly, is a complete disinterest in uh, cityscape. The spaces between are literally just landscaped. And, and just as importantly is social diversity and mix because no, the market does not want to build housing 
It only wants to leverage housing, therefore it wants to optimize rich housing. So we are in this, par- this paradox that no one can afford to live in London, and yet we are, the, the investors are making a lot of money out of it. So, Rome, we've lost the civic, and it's all the fault of the market. Um, Otherwise, it, we'd be fine. Roughly, yes. yes. Um, <laughs> or rather, <laughs> it's kind of got out of whack. I mean, obviously, so. you need the market to build the city, and you also need the public, both, both politically speaking and the public actual people, to counterbalance it. Um, I'm very sympathetic to what David says about why can we not have more directed planning that actually has an idea of what it's trying to create. Um, I get more sceptical when I see Swiss and German cities again and again because I really can't see that as a model for London as it is now. And I I would actually be really interested in, in... out of the situation we're in now, somebody or several people inventing a really London way of doing this, which... Such as the mayor? The mayor. This would be... Um, the mayor could lead it, yes. Um, I mean that seriously. Could a decision of such importance be taken from the top? Yeah. When the convention now says everything has to come from people and consultation and community planning. Can can that happen? Because I think that's an interesting political debate. Well, it has to come from the top. It has to be initiated from the top. I agree. But it has to recognise the reality of power structures in London, which means that boroughs have quite a high degree of power relative to the mayor, for example. Um, I'm just briefly tell a London way of doing it recognises the extreme multiplicity of the city. And where we are now, I think it recognises the intensity going on for insanity of the city. David, what, what is the London way? Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, how, how do you, you know, Pandora's box is open. How do you re- recreate it? And by the way, the European um, system is also collapsing because the public system is finding it more and more difficult yeah. to finance itself. Um, I do think that there is, you know, and I think uh, Rowan alludes to it in his book about the lack of professional respect for the planning process. We don't think, we don't trust um, the professional position anymore. Um, The planning, you know, our planning process here is very arbitrary. The planning officers are often hardly listened to. You know, I've been in planning hearings where they're not even called to to make their opinion because the committee, an amateur committee, decides... Um, on another, for another reason. So I think that the ability to articulate... I mean, I'm sorry to bang on about, about Paddington Basin, um, and I apologize if anybody's here, because it's nothing personal, but I had no idea... I'm having dinner with the developers. So. I had no idea it was happening. Did you know it was happening? Did you? I'm an architect. Living in this city, I had no idea that a piece of land the size of Soho was going to be reinvented with the potentiality of being... A city. Now, I think if that had been discussed more, the results might have been a bit better. Not necessarily completely different, you know. And again, I don't think, I, I agree with, I think what Rowan's saying is, look, you can't invent a sort of mid-European position anymore. And actually, shouldn't you start with the energy that we have and try and, you know, um, it's quite difficult. 
you know, it's quite difficult to have a bit of something. You know, you sort of have, have it all or not. I think one of the extremely powerful things you said um, throughout but came out very clearly at the end is the, in a way, your attack on fat buildings, you know, the, 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 which if you translate that, it's effectively a loss of granularity. It's a loss of what makes Lincoln's and Fields connect to the surroundings, what makes Soho work. So, which, is, uh, which is also uh, this myth of, you know, London's always been a developer city. Yeah, but they developed with houses, with front doors, on streets, with windows, four, four or five stories. I mean, that's a very no, all, different all thing. All I to ask both of you, for example, in Copenhagen now, if you design a building, there's a, a regulation which comes from the work of an academic, Jan Gell, which is you have to have an opening, a sort of interface, uh, uh, an interaction between the public and the private uh, every 15 meters. The, the, you can't have longer length with blank walls. Or, I mean, that, that's, that's quite a micro-intervention, and you have to have um, uh, urban blocks which don't, aren't longer than a certain size. But I, I mean, is actually, that, this is, this is a, a, a positive contribution of Boris's mayoralty. Was, it was the London Housing Design Diet. I mean, it's criticised. Tell us more about a positive well, contribution by Boris. Um, <laughs> I, think, I, think it's, I, think it, I think it was something he nicked from Ken, like a lot of things, but um, I'm not quite sure when it started. But um, anyway, these, these are these set of guidelines that set minimum standards for homes. Um, and one of the rules is you have to have a, a, a certain amount of open space, which usually translates as a balcony that has a slightly more generous proportion than, than developers used to build. And it's quite a modest thing, but um, it means that it does make flats a bit more pleasant. And it means when you're walking down the street outside a very average block of flats, they have these balconies, which, which is a sign that there are people in there, and there's a possibility of a sort of interaction between the street and the, and the people who live inside. Um, so, yeah, those kind of rules, I think, are very good in print books. Everyone knows where you stand. They cost a little bit of money, but that cost comes out of the land value um, because you know, the developers calculate it when they buy land. So, and as land values are so incredibly high, one doesn't really re- need to weep for the people who own it in the first so, place. David, could, could one do something similar at, let's call it the urban scale rather than... This is interesting because it's about the built form of a house, mm. but the impact it has on the outside. I mean, r- reminding of that beautiful painting of the man standing watching... The Houseman space, but could could one imagine a syntax of public space? I think it's difficult to think of too many rules that are going to work that well. You know, and um, you know we've worked with a number of developers, and what they do is try and work out if you put all that together, how can you know? Mm. Everyone's trying to work out ways of getting around it. I think if these things are put down and and maintained and and uh, uh, rehearsed continuously in a very professional dialogue. I think the problem is that there's no dialogue. It's very difficult to get a meeting with the planning department. I dialogue mean, so between difficult. who and who? Us and the planners. I mean, the, you know, and I think the, the planning department should be invested with more authority and, and, you know, leverage. And I think then you can have that. You know, they should have more, more presence and more expertise because then, because I think if you put down rules, they only have Respect if they're somehow maintained. You know, there's got to be. You you need some dialogue. And the paradox of this is there's an enormous amount of planning in London. There's several layers potentially you have to go through before you get planning permission. 
at every level different consultants can come into play and you have professional consultancies like DP9 who are full of bright well-educated people whose job is to massage the system rather than making the system better and that is a massive waste of energy and absolutely what's happened is that all those experts have come onto the developer's side they've come onto the private side so they you know there is expertise there but they're not on the right side of the table. I think w- one of the issues with, uh, that you're both talking about is that planning is, such a, is a technical issue. It's about effectively something that you can measure while you're looking for something much more, uh, in a way, uh, cultural. And, and yeah. that's, that's quite difficult to grasp. But it's also reactive. It's always, it's always um, how can we react to what's proposed, not how can we positively propose. Right. Let's um, open up uh, the questions to the floor. Uh, if you wait for a microphone, could you please say who you are and please be brief. Um, we'll take maybe two or three together. So there's a lady uh, three-quarters of the way up on the, uh, over there who's got a mic. Can you go up there? Can you wave? Hello. Thanks for um, both your views. Um, David, since you mentioned Paddington Basin a lot, I'd like to use it as an example to ask your opinion about the current planning process of the Westminster Council. How is it possible that, for instance, buildings within that area which are in a conservation zone, people who live in these domestic vernacular architectures, can't upgrade their windows, for instance, to the inn with the conservation rules, yet you can have developments like the proposed um, Renzo Piano 76-story building opposite um, the Paddington Station. How, how can this kind of dialogue exist in a city like London, which just seems so contradictory? You're saying that there's very strong restrictions in conservation areas, and then you can nearly do what you want in uh, yeah, an opportunity zone. Uh, yeah, I think this is a... Well, I think that goes back to the, to, to the, to the same issue that, you know... I, th- I think there has to, you know, ha- the planning process is, has to be a living and a dynamic and evolving intelligence. And you need intelligent people doing it, and you need them with the right resources, and they, they need to be able to... Otherwise, you, you just put down blanket solutions, and, and yeah, it's, it's black or white. But, I mean, there's also... It's definitely true that the bigger you, the project, the more money you've got to spend, the sort of easier it is to get through planning. Yeah. Uh, but just another point is that conservation areas and listed buildings are now almost the last sort of bulwark of planning. So more and more, they are the sort of things that are used as levers to try and manage planning because there's nothing else. The gentleman over there with the blue shirt with the microphone. And in fact, my, my name is Ian Curry, a retired civil servant, and my question is primarily, I think, to uh, David Chipperfield. Uh, he was can you formerly, speak into I the, think... Can you put it closer? Is that better? Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll carry on then. The question is to David Chipperfield. Um, he was formerly, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, chair, Mies van der Rohe chair to the uh, Escola Technica in Barcelona. Is that correct? Uh, What's I, the question? Well, the question is, he's also... A, uh, uh, what, what I'm getting at is... With, um, let me get with Sorry about this. Um, I did what, teach what, in Barcelona. What, what, what is his lesson. opinion of the view, bearing that in his views of the uh, 
Prince of Wales' aesthetic views on the, the, the appearance of a London at present. Okay, we'll come back to that. I think the woman right in front of you wanted to ask a question. So let's, let's have... Yeah. Um, on fat buildings... Who are you? So I'm Sham- <laughs> My name's Shamis, so I'm an architecture student. Um, fat buildings, the King's Cross master plan that you showed, one of the largest buildings on that site was um, the Granary Building, an ex-railway co- building of commerce um, that's now become an art school. Um, so I think that's one of the largest buildings on the site. Would you say that there's also an issue with that, considering it's a historical building and arguably in its current guise it contributes a lot of the life and activity in the public spaces of King's Cross? Would you say that it's an issue of size and a scale of building or mm. typology? Let's take, there's also one question here at the front, please. It's George Kessler. Kessler's a manufacturer and former LDA board closer, member. Closer, closer. Sorry, is that better? George Kessler. Kessler's a manufacturer and former LDA member. Uh, why did Design for London fail? And is it an experiment wor- worth trying again? Because that way you can afford the quality of planners you need and you should be able to report to the mayor which will save the diversiveness of the planning committees you referred to earlier. Okay. Do you want- David, we'll do the last one. You do the I'm last one. Ricky, that one. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last question. <clears throat> why, did, why did Design for London fail? It was the original planning mechanism across London that started by Jim Livingston. It was okay. quite good architects, and the idea was to tackle some of the problems that David has been talking about. And is it worth trying to get? Got it. Thank you. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's people in the room who know better than I do the precise political mechanisms. Um, but I, I, I think it was for the sort of politics of it that, um, that, that you know, pe- developers don't actually like being told what to do too much. And there was a strange relationship between what was called the Planning Decisions Unit in City Hall and Design for London, and they really weren't taking the same view of, of things. And, and I would say Design for London was not really given enough clout and power and influence is, is the short answer. David, the question about girth and porosity, maybe? Um, no, you talked about the granary building. I mean, obviously, it's the, actually the biggest building there is the King Cross Railway Station. So, I mean, obviously, I'm not criticizing uh, pre-existing buildings. I'm just saying if you're developing, um, I think it's worth us thinking about the grain of buildings, not just the height, because it seems to me that the, the scale of buildings has a profound influence on public space. I mean, obviously, I don't, I'm not suggesting you should knock down any pre-existing 19th century large building. But what is interesting about the granary and the, the stations around them, however large they are, is that actually the public for most building. of the day you can walk through the porous. Uh, at relatively easily, and that was a planning requirement, I imagine. But So in that sense, not everything about planning needs to be negative. I think, Ron? That's what I was going to say. I think, mm-hmm. I think we should re- respond to the Prince Charles question as well. I mean, I, I think, um, personally, I, th- I think Prince Charles just had such an extraordinarily narrow understanding of what good architecture is that um, he, I don't think he has anything terribly interesting to say about the debate at this point. I think we should uh, really not move on from Prince Wales. Uh, Prince no, Wales. but I think, we, no, I think, I, I, I think there's, there's one serious point about yeah. it, which is 
does the quality of architecture mess up the city? And I don't believe it does. I, I think you can be quite Catholic about what you allow to be built in terms of architectural style. I don't think that that's... In terms of volume, I mean, and I would have said um, until recently that it's very difficult for a single building to ruin a city, um, but after Vigno- Vignoli's walkie-talkie, I slightly <laughs> um, reconsider my position on that. Um, I, I, <laughs> I think I don't need to explain which building that is, given, <laughs> given the reaction in the room. That's supposed to stay in the room. (laughs) David, I wanted, uh, not only because you raised that point, which is, uh, but you used right at the beginning a a fascinating word which is rarely used in architecture, in in certainly uh, particularly accomplished architects talking about their work, even though you weren't talking about your work, but perhaps you might even use that word. Uh, And that word was mundane. I thought it was a very, very interesting uh, novel way of, in a way, describing that the relationship between goodness in a city and goodness in architecture requires a degree of uh, mundaneness or, uh, or, or modesty, perhaps you might call that. And, of course, you're an architect who has spent his life creating... Mundane. No. <laughs> I, I was about to say nearly the opposite. You've actually... No, you've, you've reversed that by actually creating jewel-like beauty out of things which don't appear so at first sight. They require uh, a certain amount of attention and discovery and accumulation, just as it takes a lot of time, love and attention and critical eye to understand a nolly plan. Right? We've talked a lot about the bigger issues. We've talked a lot about planning, bashing, etc. But let's, let's end with just some thoughts about what is that relationship in the end between the architecture and its quality. You showed that intriguing image of the, um, of the pavement detail, which I know you could have spent an hour and a half talking about, right, in terms of how do you actually make it and why that is important. Say a little bit more about uh, where does mundane architecture and the great skill of the architect come together. Well, I think that question could lead you in two ways. In the context of talking about cities, um, I think that, I, I, you know, strangely, when, you know, I'm coming here as an architect, I'm trying to argue that architecture isn't so important, which is a, no. you know, I'm being a bit contrary, but I certainly don't think it's as important as good planning. And I think a good city is a vitalizing thing. It, it revitalizes, you know. A city gives you life. The man looking out of the window... Um, is vitalized by his relationship to the city. Because, and, you know, I would say the Latin cultures, uh, that exists. You know, you can, we just, when Spanish city recently, and, you know, mu- really mundane. But how vitalizing was just the, the general urban condition? It's not about, wow, look at this building or that. Within that context, of course, I would plead that it would be nice if things had physical um, authority and presence, of course. Um, but you can't replace the, the quality of the city by the quality of a building, and especially our tendency to monumentalize everything. 
you know, the Nolly plan shows the mundane, you know, the potatoes, and the, the monuments. We are now in a climate where everything is a monument. You know, people's extension on the back of their house is a monument. Um, everything becomes a monument or an icon. We need, we're now about to have a situation where we have a public space icon called a bridge. You know, all of a sudden, we have to make public space into an icon in order for it to become serious because at that point, it's visible. So, and that's a very unmundane thing, in my opinion. And I think this is, a, this is the danger of the time we live in when it comes to the physical and built world. We, are, we judge the, de- the decisions which go into that, to making that world, um, are made at the same level, which very superficial decisions are made. So we are making virtual and superficial and image-based decisions on things which have profound and deep substantial repercussions. And that's why I think we need professional dialogue, we need articulation, we need public dialogue as well. I mean, as you know, I, mean, I, I worked in Berlin on one project for 12 years. We had 500 newspaper articles, we had protests, we had, and I was in dialogue, and I found it as one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. I'm, I don't reject the idea of public dialogue either, but you want, it, you want there to be an articulate, professional dialogue about these serious and professional Processes. Well, I'm glad you, in a way, brought us back to that fundamental point that you raised at the beginning, that you know, the making of cities is a, a humanistic act. And effectively, in describing it in this way, in describing the making of a piece of architecture as part of this bigger issue, we've taken things back there, which is the right way and the right moment to end the evening. You also referred to the fact that you're now a trustee of the John Soane Museum. One of the great directors was the historian... Sir John Summerson, who, in writing many wonderful books about Georgian London, about the picturesque, about the city, uh, summarized it with a phrase which I never forget. He said he called it London uh, and this whole movement, a happy coincidence of intent, money, uh, making money, and circumstance. And those things just happen. And I think in your book, uh, in your work, and certainly in your observations today, you've made us uh, rethink London uh, and um, go out there, see the city in this uh, warm evening, and tomorrow tell Sadiq, possibly, or Zach what to do. Thank you very much, David. <laughs>